Let's pray together. Father, this is your word. Uh, we give you thanks that you've given to it, uh, it to us. You have told us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So we pray that we would receive today like those who are hungry and that you would be gracious to feed us uh, on Christ and that our souls would be strengthened and that we might live more pleasing to you and more joyful in ourselves and more good for others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 14, and here's what we're going to see in this chapter. Sort of like a, a compass. You know how a compass always points north. No matter how it gets turned about, no matter where you are, no matter what it turns, the needle finds its way always to north. In the same way, in this passage, no matter what happens, no matter where they are, no matter how many twists and turns come about in the passage, the witnesses for Jesus always find a way to point people to Jesus. That's what you see in this passage, that Paul and Barnabas, no matter how they're twisted and turned, no matter the responses, no matter the city, no matter what happens to them, they point people to Jesus. In fact, if there's sort of a big idea for our sermon today, it's this. It's that whether praised or persecuted, we are always to point people to Jesus. That's the big idea. Whether praised or persecuted, we are always to point people to Jesus. So we're picking up where we left off last week. And if you remember, we're sort of following Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. If you remember, the church in Antioch had that fasting prayer meeting at the top of 13, 1 to 3. The Spirit of God told them to go, right? This is Acts 1.8 being fulfilled. Jesus had said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth is in view because now we're trekking with Paul along his missionary journey, right? And throughout these chapters, it's just two chapters that covers Paul's first missionary journey, just chapter 13 and chapter 14. But in these two chapters, if I remember right, we're covering about two years in time and about a thousand miles in travel. They had started in 13, if you remember, in Cyprus. That was Barnabas' hometown, so it probably made sense that when they were starting, they were going to go to people familiar with Barnabas, his hometown, speak to people that he knew about Jesus. So there at Cyprus, they met Sergius Paulus. You remember the brilliant guy, one pastor liked to say, who had more degrees than the thermometer, right? This smart, intellectual human being, and he believed. And from there, if you remember last week, we were in Antioch in Pisidia, and there Saul, Paul, went to the synagogue, preached a sermon. You remember from last week? Sort of this survey all the way from Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, the prophets, Psalm, Isaiah, Habakkuk. And through that whole sermon, people believed. And then eventually they were run out of that town. And now at the start of 14... They are headed for a region called Galatia. Now, if that name sounds familiar to any of you that are familiar with your Bibles, you know that Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians. That letter was written to the churches that are planted from this chapter. Acts 14 is the planting of the churches to which Paul would later write the letter to the Galatians. And so now we're in the region of Galatia. We're trekking with Paul and Barnabas. We start in Iconium. This is 14, verse 1. 
Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now let me pause to make just one observation because there's a pattern that's emerging that you're going to see happen over and over again in Acts, which is that Paul's missionary method, this is the first missionary trip they're taking, his strategy is, I'm going to go to a region and I'm going to find sort of the biggest, baddest city of that region. He's not going to even go to some outskirt town. He's going to go to the center which has influence on that whole region and try and plant a church right there. He's going to reach northeast U.S. by planting in New York City, that kind of thing. So he goes to a leading city, and whenever he goes to a city, the first place he goes is to a synagogue. It's almost like he's going to go after low-hanging fruit. In the synagogue are going to be people that have a shared heritage with him, shared commonality with him, shared beliefs and traditions with him. He can open the scriptures and they know what he's talking about. He can reference David and they know who he is. And so he's going to go to the synagogue so that he can connect the dots of their own Bibles forward to Jesus, just like he did in Antioch and Pisidia. And so we can imagine that when he gets to Iconium, And when he starts speaking in the synagogue, it's probably a sermon that sounded just like we heard last week. How he surveyed the scriptures, pointed all of the scriptures to Jesus. That's probably exactly what he preached here. And just like in Antioch and Pisidia of chapter 13, there is again both reception and rejection of his message. Right? This is what it says in verse 1. It says, he spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So they preach, and in fact, the Lord himself from heaven, this is the risen Jesus acting from heaven, that's the book of Acts bears witness to the message by signs and wonders. And yet, as you keep reading, despite the word of grace, which is this beautiful description for our gospel message, that's what we proclaim to everyone, a word of grace. He's in the synagogue, grace, God's grace, not the law, grace through Jesus Christ. This word of grace accompanied with miracles, and yet there's opposition. And if you keep reading, you find that the opposition is so intense that Paul and Barnabas get wind that the leaders intend to stone them, and so now they are driven again out of a city. Now they have to flee Iconium. And yet here's what's amazing. As they're driven out from place to place, they are driven out, and yet not before seeds of the gospel are planted in that place that take root and little baby churches are born. It's an amazing thing that as Paul is driven from place to place, you can almost picture him trekking with a satchel full of seed. And he's being driven out, and so he's on the run always, but seed keeps falling out of that satchel along the way. And it's taking root and bearing fruit, and there's these little churches that are in Paul's trail. He's trekking, he's running from city to city, being driven out, but not before little churches are popping up behind him, in the trail behind him. The seeds of the gospel planted, little churches beginning to emerge. And so now he's got to leave Iconium, but not before a baby church plant has been planted there. So now he's run out of Antioch, Pisidia, and headed to Iconium. He's now run out of Iconium and has to be 
heading again out, and so he heads over to Lystra. This is verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now they get to Lystra. And when you get to Lystra, what's almost strikes you at first, it's what's missing more than what's mentioned. It's almost what you don't see as much as what you do see. What is it that we don't see? What is it that's not mentioned? When he went to Antioch and Pisidia, he headed to the synagogue. When he went to Iconium, he headed to the synagogue. As you keep reading in Acts, when he gets to Thessalonica or Berea or Corinth, he's going to go to the synagogue and find the synagogue and go to the synagogue. We get to Lystra or Lystra, and there is what? No synagogue. Historians tell us you probably needed just 10 Jewish people in a city in order to assemble and form a synagogue. And so the clue given to us here is Lystra does not have in itself even 10 believers. I mean, you're talking now a city that has no acquaintance with the scriptures, that has never heard of Yahweh before, that doesn't even have 10 low-hanging fruit in that city. There's no one predisposed to hearing about the Messiah in Lystra. The, the clue given here is you're now a long way away from Jerusalem. Right? This is Jesus, what Jesus said. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we're now headed towards the ends of the earth. We're in a city that's so not Jewish, or you might say Gentile, that there isn't even a synagogue here. And what you're seeing, what Dr. Luke wants Theophilus, you remember that name, who he's writing this book for? What he wants Theophilus to know, what he wants you and me to know, is the gospel is now advancing into Gentile territory, into places and among people that have no familiarity with Yahweh, who wouldn't know who David was, who have never heard the Ten Commandments, that this is a pagan place. And in fact, that it's a pagan place will become very clear in what happens. What happens? Paul and Barnabas are speaking, and there's a man there listening. He's a crippled man. He's lame. He has never walked from birth. And this man locks in on Paul. He doesn't yawn once, doesn't blink. He is staring, and his soul is hanging on every word that comes from Paul's mouth. And Paul could tell that God was doing something in this man's heart, that faith was emerging, the seed of the gospel was being planted. And so Paul looks at this man, stares intently at him, and he says, stand upright on your feet. And just like that, this man who had never used his leg muscles before in his entire life pops up, springs up onto his feet. This miracle happens. Now, what is this miracle about? It's what we had read already in 14 verse 3. You remember? In 14.3 it said, The Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. What's that? Their witnesses, but Jesus from heaven is witnessing also, and he's witnessing through this miracle that these men are my men. Their message is my message. You should believe. And so he authenticates the message through the miracle. And he authenticates the messengers through this miracle. And moreover, here's what's happening. If any of this sounds familiar, 
It's because we saw a scene exactly like this earlier in Acts. It was in Acts 3, and it was Peter and John, and they were heading to the temple in Jerusalem, and there was a crippled man lying by that place, and they said to that man, get up, and he did. And what's Luke trying to show us? Luke's trying to show us that the same Spirit of God that worked in Jerusalem, by the temple, among the Jews, through Peter and John, is guess what? At work now, through Paul and Barnabas, in Gentile territory, where there's a temple to Zeus in the city entrance, and there's a, a lame man here, and the same Spirit of God is at work among the Gentiles. He is not a God whose jurisdiction is just over Jerusalem. He is God over all people and all places. And his spirit and his son is powerful everywhere. And God really is having this gospel advance to the ends of the earth. And now here's what happens. This man stands upright in verse 11. And the crowds, when they saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are of men like nature with you, and we bring you good news. Now, we'll get to what they say in a moment. But here's what happens. Historians tell us that in this very place, there was writings from their poets, that there was a legend in that very region that the gods Zeus and Hermes had come down to that very region before. And when the gods had come in the likeness of men, everybody ignored the gods, except for this one elderly couple. And the legend that this poet wrote goes that the gods were so annoyed at the lack of hospitality that they essentially wiped out in a flood that whole place except for the home of this one elderly couple. That's the background. So it's almost like in this passage, the people of this region are determined they are not going to let that happen again. They are not going to miss out on the gods when they show up again. They are not going to anger the gods again. They are going to be on the gods' good side this time. And so now, Paul and Barnabas do this miracle. The man stands up who's never walked before. They interpret that as the gods have come back. We saw what happened when we ignored them last time. We cannot miss them this time. And so they start this worship service towards Paul and Barnabas. It's unbelievable. What's even more amusing is Paul and Barnabas have no idea what's going on. They can't tell because why? Verse 11 says that the crowd lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, a language they don't know, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Meaning it's not until the priest is coming with a garland to put around their neck and oxen to slaughter in front of them, that they realize, oh no, they're worshiping, and we're the ones being worshipped. And all of a sudden, what does Paul and Barnabas do when they realize, we have just led these people to us, right? What do they do? They are horrified. Horrified. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments. That's what you do when you're in lament and mourning and grieving. They tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd and said, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good 
news. What did they say? I'll tell you in a second. But here's what I want you to see. When people pointed to them, they were horrified. They had not come to peddle Jesus to get people to look at them. Jesus was not a means to more self-esteem. They were not dabbling in Jesus so that people might think how awesome they are and what a great speaker Paul is. They were horrified that people were looking at them. In fact, when people pointed to them, they pointed people to Jesus. See, they're like this compass. No matter how you turn them, they always pointed people to Jesus. Do you see them? They don't bask in the compliments of being thought of highly. They don't linger over the praise. They don't rewind and replay over and over again the compliments and, and, and drink in and soak in and bathe in the applause. When people pointed to them, they immediately pointed people to Jesus. And we've seen this in Acts before. In fact, in chapter 3, when Peter did that miracle in Jerusalem, the crowds were astonished and stared at him. You know what Peter said? Literally, quote, Acts 3, Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? And the very next sentence, he tells them about Jesus of Nazareth. When people looked at them, they pointed to Jesus. That's exactly what all the witnesses of Jesus do. All our heroes in the Bible point people to Jesus. When people pointed to them, they point people to Jesus. John the Baptist is one of my favorites. Paul had mentioned John in Acts 13 in his sermon in the synagogue. Who was John the Baptist? John the Baptist was a man whose ministry had sort of made it in our day. If there was celebrity pastors, John would have been up there. He would have been on the speaking tour of every conference. His Twitter would have had thousands of followers. He would have been retweeted daily. People would have been podcasting him and listening to him. Stadiums would have been packed out to hear from John. And John didn't even just have a drawing from religious folks. If you read who came up to John, it was Hollywood types and celebrity types and every type came to John. And when stadiums full of people came to John the Baptist and they were hungry for his every word and every eye was staring at John, they would say to John, tell us, John, tell us about you. And what would John say? The only thing I have to say about myself is I am not the Christ. He doesn't even describe who he is. He just tells you who he's not. I am not the Christ. No, 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 John, tell us, tell us, who are you? The questions keep coming. Who are you, John? And John finally says, I'm not, don't even count me like a human. You know who I am? I'm a voice in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Don't even count me as a man. Count me as a voice. Whenever I've thought of that, I've always thought of this one thing. I may have said this before. I've always thought of the State of the Union address. You know the State of the Union. It's this one time in American politics where it's almost like this regal event. It's like there's this majesty to the hour. No matter who the president is, no matter what you think of him, there's this sort of pomp and circumstance to the State of the Union address. And how does the State of the Union address happen? Everybody who's anybody is in Washington that day, in the Capitol building. All the who's who are in that room. And yet, how does the night begin? Everyone's in the room, everyone's talking, and all of a sudden, a hush comes over the crowd because the back door opens. And when the back door opens, a man emerges. 
Now, you have no idea who that man is. You don't know his name. You don't know his title. You don't know how he snuck into D.C. that day. You have no idea why he's in the Capitol building because you don't recognize him. But from the back of the room, what does he do? He says, Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States of America. And suddenly the room erupts with applause and the president makes his way down to the front and every eye is looking at him and every hand is shaking and everyone is cheering and they watch him all the way until he climbs up to the podium and everyone is looking forward and you know who no one ever thinks about again? That voice from the back. He slips out the back door and you have no idea where he came from and you have no idea where he went and nobody cares because he was just a voice to prepare the way so that everyone could look at him. John said, you know who I am? I'm that guy. My entire life's purpose is to point people to Jesus. And when they get a glimpse of him, I slip out the back and no one should ever think of me again. That's Paul and Barnabas. When people pointed to Paul and people stared at Barnabas, they said to them, why are you looking at us? And they pointed people to Jesus. Now let me give you two seconds on how they pointed to Jesus in this particular place. Verse 15, why are you doing this? We're of men just like you, and we came to bring you good news. That, by the way, is a wonderful thing, right? You should pause for a second. That's what we're bringing the world. We're not clobbering with Jesus. We're not selling something. We have come because we have good news for the world. And, and if we believe that, we'll share that. We have good news. And here's the good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. I want to take two seconds just to tell you, he pointed people to Jesus, but how did he point people to Jesus in Lystra? In fact, if you were to compare this sermon to the sermon you just heard him preach in 13, would you not go, this is two entirely different sermons? I mean, when he's in the synagogue, what does he do? He gives them this survey of the scriptures from Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and First and Second Kings and Psalms and Isaiah and Habakkuk. And he tells them about the law, and he tells them about David, and he tells them about Moses, and he tells them about the Messiah, and he tells them about Jesus. Here, now I can guarantee you this probably wasn't his whole sermon. I'm sure he said more or was prevented from saying more because they were about to put garlands on his neck and slaughter an ox in front of him. But he got out what he could. But would you notice here, there's no reference to Moses. No mention of the law. He doesn't say David. He doesn't talk about Israel. He doesn't quote the Psalms or the prophets. In fact, there's not even a single verse that he quotes. Why? Because they don't know who Moses is. And they've never heard of David. And they don't know the law or the prophets or the Psalms. And you tell me, is this not relevant to us who seek to be witnesses to Jesus among a people and a place that is ever increasingly growing more and more unfamiliar with the scriptures. Do you not have co-workers who have no idea how to pronounce Habakkuk, let alone who he is? Do you not have classmates and friends who would have no idea how to recite for you the, the prophets or the laws or the books of the Bible? And so 
aren't we, if we're going to seek to be witnesses for Jesus, wouldn't we do well to hear, to learn from Paul that Paul doesn't, it seem, have one prepackaged message of Jesus that he sort of plugs and plays no matter where he goes. But instead, he's able to adapt as a missionary to the context and the people and start wherever they are. If he's in the synagogue, he doesn't have to waste any time. He's going to point to all the scriptures he can and show them how the scriptures point to Jesus. But here, he's in Lystra. And so who is he among and what are they like? You consider that for a moment. And you see the skill in which he is a missionary. You think of this. The people here in Lystra are what? They're scared of the gods. Because they can't miss him this time like they did last time. They got a flood for ignoring him and not being hospitable. So they need to appease the gods, and they always do. In fact, when you're polytheistic, you always have a pantheon of gods to appease because these gods have small jurisdictions over various places. There's a god of war, and a god of the land, and a god of the sea, and a god of agriculture, and a god of fertility. And you've got all these gods depending on what you need. You're going to war? Well, you better make sure you get the right God because you need war, protection, safety. If you're going to travel by sea, you got to worship Poseidon that day because you need his help. You want good crops? Well, it's the God of agriculture. You want a child? It's the God of fertility. You've got to go to all these different gods. And to those people, Paul says, I have good news for you. Here's the good news. You can turn from all these vain things because there is one true living God and this God made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, you know what? The true God has jurisdiction over it all. He's not parsed out into little bitty pits. He's not, he's not in little parts or little aspects of nature. You go to him because he is Lord of all. The one true God has been good over all. He's not limited to a jurisdiction or a territory or a region or an aspect. And then he goes on, and I have more good news for you. You have not known him and have ignored him for generations, but all the while he's been good to you. You never once offered him sacrifice, and yet there's been rains falling on you all the time. You didn't even know he was, and he's given you fruitful seasons. You never once worshipped him, and he's given you food on your table, and that laughter around the meal, all of that was the grace of the one true God you never knew, but he sent me to tell you good news. You can turn from those other gods. There's one true living God. He would say to us, have you enjoyed anything in this past year? Have you enjoyed good health this past year? Have you enjoyed success at work this past year? Have your kids stayed relatively safe and healthy this past year? Is your marriage intact this past year? If, if you've laughed around the table this past year, any of these things have come from the hand of a God even if you didn't know who he was. It's all the grace of this good God. And we would do well, Seven Mile Road, to learn from the missionary method of Paul. Uh, Tim Keller, this great preacher, he, he, he makes this great point of saying, look, in, in our day, in our culture, people may not immediately respond to, listen, these are the Ten Commandments, you've broken them, you've sinned and disobeyed, and you're going to go to hell against a holy God. There might be all kinds of hurdles and obstacles to that. Who is this God? Why should I obey those commandments? I don't believe in a loving God who would send people to hell. That's your truth. I have mine. And so on and so on. But, but maybe into a culture like ours, like Lystra, 
It's to show, you know what, irreligious as you may be, you too have something you're living for. You too have something that you're mastered by because we all have gods, whether we call them or not. We all have something that we're living for. Everybody's got a salvation story, meaning everybody's got something that go, if I could just have that, that would be my heaven. And if I don't have that, that would be my hell. And so there's always a savior that's going to bring you to your version of heaven. And there's always something that threatens to bring you to your hell. You all have these dreams that would be the best life or these nightmares of the worst thing that could happen to you. Those are your masters. Those are your gods. They might be money or success or fame or power or sex or approval, whatever they are. If you have it, you're happy. If you don't, you hate yourself. But into this culture, if you could show them you do have masters, you do have things that you're living for, and then show them, and your gods are merciless. They never forgive you when you fail. Your career never forgives you when you fail. Human approval never is merciless when there's a scandal. There's never any grace when you've blown it. And yet, the true God... The true God is good to you, and the true God forgives you when you fail him. In fact, would you hear this? Paul might have went on to say in Lystra, the true God did come in the likeness of men, and we were inhospitable to him. In fact, not only did we not welcome him into our homes or into our hearts, we killed him. And with his dying breath, the true God said, forgiveness. That's good news. So turn from these vain things towards this good news. When they were praised, they pointed people to Jesus. Let me end our passage. Because the scene now turns dramatically and drastically and very quickly. In fact, it's almost like your head spins when Sergio was reading that for us. Did you feel how dizzying it was? Because Paul and Barnabas will go from being praised in one verse, in the very next verse they will be persecuted. Because 19 says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing he was dead. Did you catch that? Literally the verse before, they are being heralded as God and praises are being hurled at them. And literally the verse after, they have rocks being pelted at their heads. I mean, and, and if... That doesn't show you, by the way, how fickle human approval is. Us who live on this anvil of, of ratings, you are only as good as your last performance. And that is a deadly and suicidal way to live. You're only as good as what you did last. And like that, you could go from the heavens to the hells. So in a moment, these Jews come. They come from Antioch and Pisidia. That's 100 miles away. That was chapter 13. Remember when they drove him out of the district? It wasn't enough to drive him out of the district. They chase Paul. They're, they're on his trail now. And they follow Paul so that they catch up with some other Jews in Iconium. Remember, they're the ones who wanted to stone him but couldn't at the top of 14. So they catch up with Ant Iconium Jews and Antioch Jews. And they get to Lystra. And they persuade the crowds. And there... They stone Paul. Now, when I read that, I can't help but think, you know what's, what's amazing about this? Saul was the same man who had such zeal 
that he couldn't tolerate that Christians were persecuted just in Jerusalem. He hunted them down hundreds of miles in foreign cities. And now that zeal has turned on him. And now the hunter is being hunted. Now in zeal, these Jews have traveled through different terrain just to grab him. And then I couldn't help but think, you wonder if Paul did not think of Stephen when he was in Lystra. You wonder as those rocks were being pelted at him if he did not recall that he once was on the other side of this. But Jesus had done something in him and now... He was being stoned for pointing to Jesus like he had once stoned someone for pointing to Jesus. And they suppose him dead. They, they, they stone him till the point that he thinks he's dead. They drag his body out of the city, dump it into a field. And then you watch what happens. Perhaps through a miracle, we don't know what it is, 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, you wonder if they gathered around him perhaps to pray, maybe to bury him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You see, the compass that is Paul, whether praised or persecuted, that needle will always point to Jesus. And so now he gets up from stones having pelted his body, and they go on to Derby. And then after that, It's unbelievable. His trek continues because the mission continues. There's more people to point to Jesus. One commentator said, I once saw the trail of a bleeding rabbit across the snow, and that was like Paul's trail across Europe. Right? Paul bloodied across Europe, and yet again, this trail of churches behind him. This trail of churches from wherever he goes. So he goes to Derby, and then would you get this, the most crazy thing? He goes back to Lystra where he got stoned. And then back to Iconium, where they wanted to stone him. And back to Antioch, where they drove him out and they started the stoning movement. He goes back to those cities. Why? Because there's baby churches there. He just, he just planted them. They don't have what they need. And so he goes back because there's baby Christians to strengthen, disciples to encourage, elders to appoint, so that these churches can continue even after Paul is gone. Listen, We want to be a church that plants churches. Isn't this a beautiful picture? There isn't isn't MDiv degrees. There isn't superstars. There's converts that the Apostle Paul knows. I've given them the word. They have the Holy Spirit. And now I'm going to commend them to the Lord. And these baby churches survive and thrive. We don't have people sitting the benches. These normal Christians are church planting. Right? All of us, that means. You have infinitely more than Lystra had. And what ought we be doing with our faith? This is what happened here. This trail of churches behind him. And he gets to this final place and he tells them it's through many tribulations that we're going to enter the kingdom of God. Right? They could see. They see the stone marks on his face. They see the bruises. And he says to them, listen, we have a crown waiting for us. But for now, we carry a cross. 
just like Jesus. And it's through these tribulations that we'll get to the end. And here's how the passage ends, 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And how God, he, opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. They get home. And I want you to almost imagine this, because it's been what? It's been two years since that fasting prayer meeting. And there's no, there's no FaceTime, there's no Skype. I mean, this church had sent these two, their beloved leaders, I mean, their best leaders, these missionaries out from the fasting prayer meeting. Two years passed by, a thousand miles of travel, and now these guys come home. Could you imagine the potluck meal that night? As they all gather together, and now they lean in, every last one of them, and say, tell us, Paul, what were these last two years like? What happened? And can you imagine being in that room as Paul and Barnabas just started recounting stories? You know, we started in Barnabas' hometown of Cyprus, and you should have seen it. God was there, and there was this brilliant guy named Sergius Paulus, and then there was this sorcerer named Elimus, and God struck that guy blind, and that guy got sight in seeing Jesus. And then from there, we went to Antioch and Pisidia, and then God opened a path for us in the synagogue, and we pointed through all the scriptures about Jesus, and God opened their hearts so that Jews and Greeks believed. In fact, the Gentiles begged us to come back the next week and preach again. The whole city showed up, and God was stirring, but then we got driven out of the town, and when we left, we went to Iconium. And there again, we preached in the synagogues. And again, God opened the doors so that Jews and Greeks believed. And then they wanted to stone us, so we ran out of town and we went to Lystra. And then there was this crippled guy. And, and we told him to stand just like Peter and John had done in Jerusalem. And the same spirit that was in Jerusalem was there in Lystra. The temple of Zeus was in the background and still God's spirit was there. And Jesus was believed and declared as Lord and the Gentiles believed. They didn't fully get it. They worshipped us for a little while, but we pointed them back to Jesus, Right? And, and then they came and stoned us. But after they stoned us, I got up and I went to Derby. And then we went back and we traced our steps and we encouraged the churches. And look what God has done. And, and wouldn't you know, when every eye in the room was looking at them, what else would they do but point again to God? Look at what God has done in this journey. When people pointed to them, they pointed people to Jesus. That's our call. Whether praised or persecuted, May we point people to Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess together you are worthy of everyone looking at you. We would grow uncomfortable at it because truly we know there's not much here to look at. And if anyone saw all the way inside, they wouldn't look at us. So we put on facades to try and seem impressive. But you are through and through impressive, worthy of worship, worthy of adoration. You are the definition of that which is praiseworthy, and every eye should look at you, and every knee should bow before you, and every tongue should confess that you and you alone are Lord. And we pray that you would help us to spend our lives to ensure that that happens. You have died to receive the worship of the nations. And so we pray that in our time and space, wherever you place us, whether praised or persecuted, we would point people to you. Help us 
Help us do that in Philly, in the regions where we live, in our workplaces, in our homes. Help us to point people to Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name.